0: Last week, as we continued our series to the book of Revelation, we began to look at Revelation 6, in which the Lamb, who was worthy to take the scroll, that has seven seals, begins to open those seals. And as he opens those seals, he reveals God's purposes and plans for how history is going to be brought to a conclusion, how his kingdom is going to be consummated in its fullest and forever form. And the first four seals unleash what is often referred to as the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And I argue that they symbolically depicted the various calamities that we should expect to reoccur in various forms throughout the time between Christ's first and second coming. That they, in a way, tell us how we should expect life to go in this fallen world before and up until the time when Christ returns. And yet, by seeing these and understanding that the Lamb is even sovereign over them, that the Lord uses them in his plan, we can remain steadfast in them. Because we know that They have not fallen outside of the Lamb's authority. That he wasn't joking when he said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And so it gives us courage and boldness to stand up and endure in them. Now, we don't always know how he's in charge of them. We don't know always what purposes he's working out in them. But we can be comforted that he is sovereign over them when they happen. Well, with that in mind, we're going to look at verses 9 to 17 of chapter 6, and we're going to see the opening Of the fifth and sixth seal. So turn your attention with me to the reading of God's word. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell on the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals, and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? As far the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Fathers, we come to your word. or may we feel its weight in our hearts, may we know its truth in our minds, and may its application, its intention, help conform our wills to yours. Lord, may we not overlook these things that are weighty, but may we properly tremble before them and understand them rightly. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the roles of the Federal Trade Commission is to enforce truth in advertising laws. And essentially, that law requires that companies, when they advertise, make accurate, truthful, and verifiable claims. If any company is found to have made intentionally false, misleading, or unsubstantiated claims, the Federal Trade Commission will then hold them to account and either they'll face serious penalties or even serious fines. And perhaps you've heard of some of these famous violations of truth in advertising law. So one of them is the shoe company, Skechers. They made a shoe called Shape Up Shoes, which claimed that whoever wore them would lose weight and tone muscle. Well, the only thing that was lost was $50 million from Skechers when they were sued because nobody gained anything. Or Activia Yogurt. They ran an ad campaign featuring actress Jamie Lee Curtis. And she claimed that the yogurt she was eating on the advertisement was scientifically proven to regulate digestion and boost your immune system. But sadly, it could not stop from a $45 million lawsuit. Or, and maybe you know this when you've seen it, maybe you use it when you travel, airborne health supplement, those little pills you drop in the water. And they were told to protect you from bacteria and germs, and they could even prevent the flu and cold. But too bad they could not prevent a $23 million lawsuit for false claims. Now, these are certainly uh, famous violations of truth in advertising laws. These are ones that are on the book. But if truth in advertising enforcement was applied to Christian theology claims and Bible interpretation claims, I think one of the most flagrant violations would have to be the claims of the so-called prosperity gospel. The so-called prosperity gospel falsely advertises that the death of Jesus defeated all sin including and especially the sin of poverty and disease and sorrow so that you can claim through the death of Christ the benefits of prosperity and health and happiness here and now. That is the claim of the prosperity gospel. And why it is so harmful is because it sets the false expectations that the life of a faithful Christian will be marked by a material prosperity and worldly success and the reason that is such a flagrant violation of truth in advertising is because jesus in many ways states the exact opposite that's not to say that jesus promised that we'd only ever be poor and unsuccessful and that to experience the opposite is a mark of unfaithfulness to him is that what i'm saying but jesus does say that faithfulness will often be met with various forms of hostility from this world and opposition by the world no one could charge Jesus with breaking truth and advertising laws. On the last night, before he's about to be betrayed and handed over to be crucified, he told this to his disciples. He could not have been clearer. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. All these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know who sent me. So Jesus is there in John 15, predicting and letting them know what faithfulness to him will look like in this world. And he doesn't mention material prosperity. He does not mention physical health. He does not mention worldly success. Those things are not sinful in and of themselves, but they're not what Jesus promises. And what Jesus promised didactically in John 15 is what is revealed symbolically in the fifth seal in Revelation 6. But also another blatant violation of truth in advertising laws is what I would call maybe love wins theology, a type of theology that goes beyond saying that God is love and starts saying that love is God, in a sense, saying that God is only love. He's all love. And love kind of whitewashes all the other attributes of God that you may not like or be comfortable with. Almost you might say that the claim makes is that a God without wrath saved a people without sin to a kingdom without commands to a life without suffering. That is not what Jesus promised. In fact, Jesus talked more about hell and judgment than anyone else in the Bible, anyone else. And what he said in his earthly ministry didactically is represented symbolically in the sixth seal in Revelation 6. So as we look at these, what I want to impress on you through this passage is this. As believers in Christ, we should expect opposition from the world And yet remain steadfast in it because the lamb sovereignly purposes to use it and to bring it to justice. So as believers in Christ, we should expect and remain steadfast in opposition from the world because we know that the lamb uses it for sovereign purposes and he will bring it to justice. That's what the fifth and sixth seal are about. So first, the lamb sovereignly purposes to use the opposition of the world. How does he use it? He uses the opposition of the world to grow and mature his people. It is his instrument of refining his people. Now, that seems absolutely counterintuitive to say that growth comes through opposition, that the, the spread of the church comes through suffering, or that the martyrdom of believers in the church is going to be the means that the Lord uses to mature his church. You know, let's say you're, you're tasked with writing out five keys to church growth, right? That's your task, that's your assignment. Five keys to church growth. Would experience hostility from the world because of your faith in Jesus be one of the five keys that you would write down to church growth? I'm guessing probably not. But now you know to put it in there so when you give that test, you got the right answer. Well, the early church father, Tertullian, this is what he said. And he's one who knows what he's talking about because he witnessed and experienced the hostility from the world in a way that we have not. And he said this, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And what he was saying is that as he witnessed and experienced the hostility from the world, even in its extreme form of people dying for their faith in Jesus, he did not see the church shrink. He saw it grow. He did not see it kind of limit its territory. He saw it expand geographically. Think of the story of Stephen the martyr in Acts 7. Here's one who is that that first martyr in the book of Acts. And what happens as a result? says that the word of God continued to grow and spread and reach new areas and cross new boundaries. Think of the story of Jim Elliot. Jim Elliot, who went to the Aka Indians in Ecuador, famously on Time magazine. And he goes there and seeking to um, get into that culture and bring the gospel there, he and his fellow missionary servants were killed And he made that famous statement, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Now, as a result of his death, the mission agency that he was a part of said, we had never experienced so much of an influx of resumes and people wanting to join the mission field after hearing what Jim Elliot and Nate Saint had done. The Lord used it to grow. So the Lord uses opposition to grow and mature his people. Well, how does he do that? Well, one way the Lord uses opposition is... He grows us in our calling to live sacrificially. By seeing the opposition that the church faces, we learn more about and are encouraged to grow in our calling to live sacrificially. Look at verse nine with me. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. Notice where John sees these martyred believers. He sees them in heaven, there under the altar. And that's very significant because just as we have the Old Testament tabernacle and temple, which had an altar, we see that that was a copy and a shadow and a replica of the temple or tabernacle, the true one, in heaven. Well, in the earthly one, the altar was the place where God's people would come and present their sacrificial offerings. Now, most of those sacrifices had to do with some form of covering and canceling sin. There were They were atoning sacrifices, but not all of them. Some of them were... Dedication offerings or thanksgiving offerings, where the offerer would come, they would come with their gift, a grain offering or an animal, and they would lay it down on the altar, not to say, Lord, forgive me, but Lord, thank you, or Lord, I dedicate myself to you. And so they would lay that altar, and just as it was being consumed, they were as, as if it were saying, Lord, just as this dedication offering is being consumed, may my life be consumed with devotion for you. Lord, just as I'm giving this offering, to you, may I give my life to follow and be dedicated to you. And that same imagery bleeds over into the New Testament. Think of Romans 12, 2. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to the Lord. Or Hebrews 13, it talks about the sacrifice that the Lord is a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving and generosity. In a sense, there is a sacrificial system going on in the New Covenant, but it's not one with animals at a temple. It is the life of gratitude lived out in generosity, in sacrifice, in costly living to the Lord who laid down his life for us. That line in that famous hymn, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. That's what this is representing here. These saints in heaven who are martyred are the ultimate example of the calling on all Christian life. To live not for self, but for Savior. To live not so that we can save our life, but to lose it so that we might gain true life. And we need to hear this because we live in a consumeristic world that is focused on what's in it for me. What can I get out of it? And yet, often when you, when you read the testimony of believers like this who lay down their life, it reminds you of Jesus' is saying, whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will find it. So that's one thing it does. It grows us in our calling to live costly, sacrificially. Also, the Lord uses opposition to grow us in our calling to live faithfully, to live faithfully no matter the results. So at the end of verse 9, two reasons are given for why these believers were martyred. It says this in verse 9. They've been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. So in other words, they would not compromise the truth of God's word in the midst of a culture that was totally antithetical to it. The ideology of the world and the truth of scripture were opposed to one another. What we deal with in a small form in our day is nothing new. In fact, it's not even as bad as it's been before. The ideology of the culture and the truth of God's word was absolutely antithetical to it. And they would not compromise the truth of God's word. But not just that they would not remain silent about it. They knew that this truth was not popular, would not be accepted, and yet they were not silent about it. Reminds me of Peter and John in Acts 4. They're preaching Christ, stirring up contention and division and different things so that authorities bring them in and they say, we'll let you go, but stop speaking about Jesus. Stop it. What do they say? Whether it's right to obey Jesus God or men, we'll let let you think about that. But we cannot keep quiet about what we've seen and heard. We cannot keep quiet about what we've seen and heard. So these believers were faithful to God's truth and they were not silent about it. That is a model of the calling of the Christian life, to faithfully get the gospel right and to faithfully get the gospel out regardless of the cost and the results. We're often so so much results-driven. I think, I think so many times what, what hinders us in evangelism, and I know this is this is true of me personally, I, I think, I just don't think it's going to work. I, I, I just don't see this going anywhere. And it stops us and it holds us back and it kind of steals our courage away. These people did this regardless of the results and the cost. Let that be an example to us. And notice, it's a both and. What good is it to get the gospel out if you do not get the gospel right? And what good is it to get the gospel right if you do not get the gospel out? We need both. We need both. And as a side note, I, I find that one of the most humbling and emboldening things you can do practically is reading the biographies of faithful Christians who have gone before you and have paid a great price, who have made the ultimate cost. It's humbling because you realize, man, I, I am... A coward. I fear man so much and it it stirs you to repentance and it, it encourages you. But then even to see that they the best man is a man at best. And if the Lord used them and gave them grace and sustained them, maybe he could do it with me. I mean, he spoke through a donkey, speaking through one now. Maybe he could do it, you know? Use the King James version word of that if you want. For one I was thinking of this this morning is the story of Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley. So these are Reformation people who were in in England at a time when there was a tossling between uh, the Catholic rule of of a king or queen and the Protestant rule of a king or queen. Fortunately, they were Protestants at a time when there was a Catholic uh, monarch in place. And they were told to stop teaching what they were teaching, stop teaching justification by faith alone and Christ alone through grace alone. And they would not do it. And so Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley were burned at the stake. And just before they go there, Hugh Latimer says to Nicholas Ridley, I love this line. He said, Be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as shall never be put out. And it was through the testimony of these men giving their life that the cause just continued to grow as the Reformation continued to spread. And what an encouragement that is. So I I encourage you to read stories like that. Well, another way that the Lord uses opposition is to grow us in our calling to live prayerfully, to live prayerfully. So live costly, sacrificially, live faithfully, live prayerfully. Look at verse 10. They cried out with a loud voice. So this is, you've heard maybe the, the uh, mission organization, the voice of the martyrs. This is where it comes from. They cried out with a loud voice. Oh, sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who, who dwell on the earth? This is an odd prayer. I'm, I'm guessing if you were to examine your prayers, maybe take inventory of them, do you pray prayers like this? This is not a common prayer that that I pray. But then maybe you look at this prayer and you think, should I pray a prayer like that? Can I? Is that that sounds a little vindictive, vengeful? And yet, one of the things that opposition suffering, hostility from the world does, is it drives us to prayer. Right after Peter and John leave, after saying, who should we obey? God or men? We're we're not going to remain quiet about it. The first thing they do in Acts 4 is they have a prayer service. They pray for courage and boldness because hostility reminds us that we are insufficient to complete this mission and we need the God who is all-sufficient. Hostility from the world shows us how prone we are to cowardice and fear of man. And we need to pray to the Lord to give us courage and boldness. And hostility from the world shows us how rampant rebellion and evil and injustice is in this fallen world. And so we need the judge of all the earth to bring justice. Is it appropriate to pray the prayer of the martyrs in verse 10? Absolutely. Absolutely, it is appropriate to pray. When we hear about a pastor like Ibrahim Issa in northern Nigeria who was walking home on the morning of April 15, 2022, and was killed by a group of Muslim men from the tribe he had converted from to Christianity, and now he leaves behind a wife and five children, should we not pray to the judge of all the earth to bring about justice on this earth? Do you want evil and injustice and depravity and all attempts at Defying and distorting God's design and his laws to be brought to an end? If so, verse 10 is an entirely appropriate prayer to pray. These martyrs are not praying, Lord, I want vengeance. I don't like what those meanies did to me and so get them back. No, they're seeing God in his sovereignty, in his holiness, in his faithfulness, and saying, God, how can you put up with this? How can you, in your holiness, put up with unholiness? How can you, in your sovereignty, allow things that make it seem like You're not in control. How can you who is true let so much falsity run rampant and amok? They're looking at God and seeing that sin is a very hideous thing. Rebellion is a very wicked thing. And they're wondering, how can God put up with it? It is a God-centered prayer, not a me-centered vengeance prayer. Now, it is not the only prayer we should pray. This is where we need to keep the the, the whole of scripture together and let let the balance and the chips fall where they they do. But it is one of the prayers we should pray. Your kingdom come, your will be done. That's a a form of praying this prayer. But also, we should pray for the repentance, for the salvation, for the the turning of our enemies. So one sense, as one author said, we pray two prayers for our enemies and God's enemies. We pray for their justification and we pray for their justice. We pray that they would turn by faith to Christ And if not, we pray that the Lord would bring them to justice. Well, another way the Lord uses opposition to grow us is in our calling to live heaven-mindedly. To live heaven-mindedly. Look at the beginning of verse 11 with me. So then, these martyrs were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer. So these believers, after going through all that they went through, Are now in the presence of the Lamb directly, and they receive two gifts. They're clothed in a white robe. Now, white is the symbol in the Bible of purity and victory. So white representing purity, spotlessness, and victory. And there's irony in both of these symbols. How ironic that these believers who were condemned by the world for what they believed, for what they stood for, get to wear the heavenly clothing that represents that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, that they have a righteousness that is pure, spotless, unblemished. They may have been condemned by the world, but they're not condemned by the Lamb who gives them this white robe. And that is one of the motivations that causes us to be able to endure the condemnation of the world. We can endure the ill favor, the condemnation of the world. Why? Because we know that in Christ we eternally enjoy the acceptance the favor, and the acquittal of the father. We have all the acceptance we need in Christ, come what may. The other irony is that the white they wear represents victory. Roman military leaders, when they were coming back from battle or you know, parading themselves around their empire, would wear white, symbol of their victory, their power. Rome is the one at this time as the main instrument of hostility towards the church. And yet Rome, thinking that they've defeated these slain martyrs, Now see that it's actually the martyrs who stand in heaven clothed in the color of victory. In the scriptures, like with our Savior, death leads to victory. Christ's death led to his victory. And so with his followers, they were slain just like the lamb was. And yet they're the ones standing in victory. The second gift they receive is rest. They receive rest. They're in the immediate presence of the lamb in heaven. So they can rest soundly because they are free from all hostility. They're free from all opposition to the world. Nothing that harmed them before can touch them now because they are close and near to the fold of their shepherd. And Thomas Brooks has rightly said that the death of a Christian is the funeral of all his sins, all his sorrows, all his afflictions, all his persecutions. And the death of a Christian is the resurrection of all his hopes, all his joys, all his comforts, all his rest that's what these believers get to experience so the opening of the fifth seal the vision of these martyrs in heaven is meant to show us that on the one hand we should not be surprised by opposition from this world like peter says in first peter do not be surprised when these fiery trials come on you as if something strange were happening do not be surprised if they oppose christ they will oppose his church Yet on the other hand, this vision is meant to show us that we should not fear opposition. We should not fear it because as difficult as it will be to face, nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus because nothing falls outside of the scope of the sovereignty of Christ Jesus. He rules it and overrules it for his purposes to grow and mature his church. Well now... Move to the sixth seal briefly. And in the sixth seal we see that the Lamb sovereignly purposes to bring all opposition to justice. He promises that yes, there is a time in which this is gonna go on. There are there are more who are gonna be added to your number, and yet there is an answer to their prayer in verse 10. Right? The, The prayer of verse 10, how long? How long, Lord, are you going to delay your patience? How long is your holiness going to put up with unholiness? The answer to the prayer in verse 10 of the martyrs is the sixth seal in verses 12 to 17. Look there with me. This is the answer to their prayer. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake. The sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood. The stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. And the kings of the earth, the great ones, the generals, the rich, the powerful, everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? What John is doing here is he's going back to the Old Testament and he's taking all these threads from the prophets that talked about the day of the Lord the great day of the Lord that would come, and he's tying them all together and saying, that day is coming. He's he's in a sense, he's zooming us forward to what that day is going to be like when Christ returns, and he's showing us that day from the angle of what will it be like for those who did not repent, who did not lay down the rebellion and submit to the sovereign rule of the Lamb, who did not embrace the Lamb who was slain for us. The two most terrible and terrifying days in all of human history have to do with wrath and the lamb. The first is when the lamb came at his first coming to bear the wrath of God in our place. When he went to the Garden of Gethsemane, stumbling, sweating drops of blood, because when he went to go commune with the father for comfort, he was handed a cup full of the wrath of God, which was meant to be poured out on all who rightly deserve it. And instead of finding comfort, he finds his cup, and the father says, drink it, all of it. And then he goes to the cross and he drinks it to the last drop. And we know that what he was facing physically was not even close to compare to what he faced spiritually. As he cried out that great cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is the first terrible and terrifying day. And the second is when the lamb will come again, but this time not to bear wrath in our place, but to bring wrath on all who have rejected the gospel and not obeyed the call to repent and believe. And the reason that there's a delay between that first day and the second day is because God is patient and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and mercy. It is because his patience is holding back the floodwaters of his judgment so that all might come to repentance, all might hear and embrace the reality of what happened on that first day when the wrath came to bear land, when the Lamb came to bear wrath in our place. That's why there's a delay between the two days. And so the two appearances of Christ, the two comings of Christ, those two terrible days are associated with two very different questions. The first appearance of Christ, when he came to bear wrath, is associated with the most comforting question. If God is for us, who can stand against us? If God is for us in Christ, because there's no condemnation, there's forgiveness of sins fully forever, who can stand against us? But the second appearance of Christ comes and it flips the question. If God is against us, who can stand before him? If God is against us, who can stand before him? That's the question asked at the end of verse 17. After seeing all the events on that great day, as John kind of zooms forward and gives us a preview of it, everyone's left with the question who can stand? And they're left with that question because of what happens on that day. Who can stand when all of creation unravels, as depicted in verses 12 to 14? Who can stand when the lights of this world are, as it were, turned off? That's what it's a picture of. It's coming from Joel chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. You can look that up later. It's a picture of when God comes as a warrior to judge. When he comes with his army in the full fury of his vengeance and justice. And the images of the sun being darkened, the moon not shining, even the stars falling because the lights have been turned off. It's as if God's patience is now over. The time is up and so he turns off the lights to let everyone know that the time has now come. Who can stand? And who can stand when all people of all statuses and all positions will be called to account? Look at verse 15. Verse 15, there's literally seven groups of people who are mentioned, And that number seven represents fullness, completion, demonstrating that God's judgment will be so thorough, so complete that no one will be left out of it. No one will escape it. Everyone will be called to account for it. The wealthy, the rich, the powerful will not be able to buy their way out or strengthen their way out of it. And even the poor or the destitute will not be able to excuse their way out of it. Everyone will be called to account before the judge of all the earth who does what is right. And who can stand when all hiding places will fail. Look at verse 15 and 16. Two times it's mentioned that they hid. They tried to hide. They were trying to hide. That echoes back to Genesis 3 or even the story of Jonah. When man knows its guilt before God but does not want to face God, what does he do? He runs. He tries to hide. Adam and Eve tried to hide because they wanted to avoid accountability to God. Jonah fled away from the presence of the Lord because he wanted to avoid accountability to God. And people may think they can get away with it, but on the last day, all hiding places will be removed. There will not be one place left where man can hide. And notice how in verse 16, these unbelievers here, they're not humbling themselves in repentance. Notice that they're not saying, Lamb, have mercy on us. They're, they're, they're still trying to hide. They, they are rebels to the bitter end, not looking to receive, not looking to beg for mercy at all. They're still rebelling. So the question is, who can stand? If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, who can stand? The answer is both no one and anyone. No one in and of themselves can stand before God's judgment. Because if if the question were just, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? The answer is no one. None of us. Could pay for our sins. None of us have the, the righteousness which makes up for the balance of our uh, debits. None of us has met God's perfect standards of holiness and truth and justice and righteousness. We are all without excuse. On that day, every mouth will be stopped. And yet, the answer is anyone can stand on that day. Anyone, if they are in Christ, the one who stood before the wrath of God in our place, can stand. Before the Father, not in and of themselves, but because they're found hidden in Christ, in whom is life and righteousness and forgiveness and redemption. Being in Christ or outside of Christ is what makes all the difference on that day. Listen as Charles Spurgeon explains the difference that being in Christ or outside of Christ will make on that day. It is pleasant to pass over a country after a storm has spent itself, to smell the freshness of the flowers after the rain has passed away, to note the drops while they glisten like purest diamonds in the sunlight. That is your position if you are in Christ. You are going through a land where the storm has already spent itself upon your Savior's head. And if there be a few drops still falling, they distill only from clouds of mercy. And you have the assurance that they are not for your destruction. But how terrible it is to witness the approach of a tempest to note the forewarnings of a storm, to mark the birds of heavens as they droop their wings, to see the cattle as they lay their heads low in terror, to discern the face of the sky as it grows black and to find the sun obscured as if the heavens were angry and frowning. How terrible to await the dread advance of a hurricane, to wait in apprehension till the wind rushes forth in fury, tearing up trees from their roots, forcing rocks from their pedestals and hurling down all the dwelling and hiding places of man. And yet, If you are outside of Christ, this is your present position. No hot drops have fallen as yet, but a shower of fire is coming. No terrible winds howl around you, but God's tempest is gathering its dread artillery. So far, the water floods are dammed up by mercy and patience, and yet the floodgates will open soon. And how awful will that moment be when God robed in justice and vengeance shall march forth. Where, O sinner, will you hide your head and where will you run to? May the mercy of God lead you to Christ even now. He is freely set before you in in the gospel. His pierced side is your only hiding place. Believe in him, cast yourself upon him and the storm will be spent and passed. As the hymn writer has said, Ye sinners, seek his grace, whose wrath you cannot bear. Fly to the shelter of his cross and find salvation there. Let's pray.